0: Acts chapter 10 today in the fascinating story of the Roman centurion. I want to encourage you to turn there and stand as we read God's holy and authoritative word. Acts chapter 10, we'll read the first 16 verses together. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to people. No, to God, sorry about that. He didn't pray to people. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And as he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean Do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the privilege of being able to study it together, to hear your wisdom. And I pray that we would not only receive it, but apply it to our lives. Help us to be teachable today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there are several questions that naturally arise from this chapter, and two prominent ones are these. What is, what's going on? Why is this story here? Why of all the main events of the early church, and there could have been many that Luke would have chosen, why does he choose this one? After all, the logical thing would probably have been to continue telling us about Paul, whom he has introduced to us in chapter 7 through 9. And then a second question is, why is Peter told that all of these Levitical restrictions on certain foods, restrictions he had faithfully respected his entire life, are suddenly no longer necessary? They're no longer applicable? Well, the answers to both of those questions are actually the same, but in order to determine them, we will need to first understand what's going on here in chapter 10. So imagine that your entire life, you had been raised a vegetarian and and more than that, imagine that your parents had convincingly demonstrated from the Bible that vegetarianism is God's will. Wouldn't you hesitate to start eating meat? Most likely, not only would you, but, but then maybe having read the 16 verses of chapter 10, you may be saying to yourself, well, I would, unless God himself told me to stop being a vegetarian. But don't you think that there would still be hesitation And certainly confusion, especially if you thought that, well, hadn't God said previously, commanded vegetarianism? Well, all of this is what is happening in chapter 10. Peter's given a vision in which he's told to eat animals that Leviticus 11 had said were unclean, and it didn't make sense. But maybe Peter was thinking this is a test. Could be a test. According to Leviticus 11, the Israelites could eat animals that had cloven hooves and chewed the cud, animals like cows, but many other animals were unclean. They could eat animals of the water that had fins and scales and could eat some birds, but insects were unclean. And so were reptiles and amphibians and shellfish and most bird species. But if you look at verse 12 on the sheet, likely a tablecloth of Peter's vision were not just the clean animals, but it says all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. It seems like it was covered by a host of animals that Peter knew that he couldn't eat. I imagine there was a pig on there. I imagine there was a lobster, a lizard, all kinds of kinds of animals that would have just shocked Peter to see them and be commanded to eat them. And if that was the case... Shouldn't you protest? If you're Peter, shouldn't you protest and say to the Lord, I will never, I would never eat those animals? Well, that's exactly what he did. If you skip down to chapter 11, verse 7, later in describing this event to other believers, Peter said, I heard a voice saying to me, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord. Now, it's not him kind of digging his heels and saying, you're going to have to make me. That's not what Peter's saying here. What he's saying is, by no means, Lord, I wouldn't do that. I want to pass this test. For nothing common or unclean has has ever entered my mouth. I've been obedient. I will continue to be obedient. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. So, yes, God was commanding something new and the rules seem to have changed, but rules are not absolute. God is absolute. He is also the rule maker. If he decides to change some of them, that's his prerogative. But in the process, we have to ask why. And what has happened to Leviticus 11? Did the entire Mosaic law suddenly come into question this day? Well, probably a better question is, does God have multiple standards? Does he have one standard for you and a different one for me? Or does he have one for Israel and another one for the nations? Or, better yet, does he have one for Israel and a different one for the church? He does not. But it sure seems like one standard for Israel in chapter 10 and a different one for the church. So I want to establish a few things that I think you'll agree with me on. First, God's character never changes. I hope you'd agree with that. His character does not change. It did not change from Adam to Noah or from Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, or from Moses until now. And if his character does not change, then the principles of his law, which are merely a reflection of his character, it's important that we realize that too, right? The law is a reflection of God's character put into human law. If his character doesn't change, then the principles of the law don't change either. I'll give you an example. God is the God of truth, and he hates lying. That will not change, ever. He hated it before the law was given to Moses, and he still hates it today. Is it ever right to covet someone's things? No, because God desires that we consider him sufficient for everything that we need. That will not change, has never changed. Jesus said that he had not come to abolish the law. He also said, as you know, not a single jot or tittle would become invalidated from the law until heaven and earth passed away. Those events have not happened. So perhaps then we can understand Peter's surprise. He heard Jesus say that. I have not come to abolish the law. Well, what's going on here? How could God do away with Leviticus 11? And if his principles never change, how could it not be okay to eat wild creatures and creeping things one day, that ugly-looking lobster and lizard on that sheet? Yesterday, but it's okay today. You can see the problem, right? Well, we resolve the problem by recognizing that we have to separate the principles behind the laws from the laws themselves. There are many commandments of God in the Old Testament. And theologians have put them into three categories. We've talked about those before, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial laws. We've talked about that the ceremonial laws are those that pertain to feasts and rituals and so on. And we've said that civil laws were the laws that pertain to life and society, such as how to treat strangers or safety measures with homes. We've Also talked about moral laws. These are laws that directly connect to moral action. And by creating a category called moral law, we have to be careful because theologians aren't saying that there aren't moral principles behind the ceremonial or civil laws. That's not what they're saying. In fact, the ceremonial and civil laws are specific applications of moral principles you think about the sacrificial system as an example the commandment to give a burnt offering for sin was an example of a ceremonial law the question is what moral principle did it apply did not giving a sacrifice bringing one to the temple or to the tabernacle did it not illustrate that man is sinful and that God is holy and by offering up a sacrifice Did not men and women acknowledge their guilt and the need for a substitute that was sinless? They saw the animal as atoning symbolically for their sin because it died in their place. But there's more, isn't there? Because over and above all of that, the sacrificial system is an entirety typified and pointed towards Christ and his perfect atonement. So what moral principles were there behind that ceremonial law? Well, recognition of guilt, acknowledgement of God's righteousness and holiness, acceptance of God's system of atonement. That's why when people just went, and hear this, friends, when people just went and they gave the sacrifice and there was no heart behind it, there was no recognition of the moral principles behind it, what did God say about it? It makes me sick, he said. That you just come up and you offer these things. As he says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in the burnt in the ceremony, in the ritual, in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. See, God is far more interested in your heart, right, than he is in your actions, even though he wants your heart attitude to result in right action, obedience. To sacrifice, but not acknowledge the principles behind it, of our guilt, of God's righteousness, the need for a substitute. It missed the whole point. Might as well not even come at all, is what God said. Same is true of church attendance, as an example. We're commanded in the book of Hebrews not to forsake the assembling of the people together. There are important reasons that we do that. Moral principles that lie behind that command. But if we simply come on Sundays out of obligation doing the right actions without the right attitude and heart, that too would sicken the Lord. Let's take that one more step. If these ceremony and civil laws illustrate immoral principles, particularly the person and the character and the actions of Christ, then we can understand why God gave so many commands in the Old Testament. Some of you sometimes say, really? Wow. People have counted almost 700 different commands in the Old Testament. God sure loves rules, doesn't he? It's temptation to say that. But if we start to step back and we go, well, what does the tabernacle represent? What does the temple represent? What does the holy of holies within those two represent? What were the ark and the cherubim and the and the mercy seat? What was the high priest and his clothing and and all those ceremonies? What were the sacrifices and the sprinkling of blood in the most holy place? What what was this whole system of which so many of those laws pertain or on temple worship? Where, Were these just the way that Israel was supposed to do things? Is God setting up a system of worship just to say this is how you worship? Or is it better to understand them as illustrations of God's holiness, man's sin, and ultimately pictures of and preparations for Christ? The latter, right? The book of Hebrews tells us that all of those ceremonies relating to the temple and tabernacle, he says, were shadows of the things to come. Tells us that the tabernacles' pattern uh, services were patterns of things in the heavens. So, what happened when the thing to which they point, Jesus Christ, actually came? Weren't they superseded by worship and service of Christ? They were, but this is very important: the moral principles to which they pointed to did not change, and they did not end. God is still holy. We are still sinners. We still need a substitute. But who or what became our substitute? It was Jesus Christ. He was the Lamb of God, and his sacrifice was perfect and eternal and once for all. And that's what Hebrews and Colossians and Ephesians are all teaching us. In fact, we're told in the Gospels that the instant that Christ died, what happened to the temple? The veil was rent in two. Separation from God and man was removed a clear and visible statement that God had done away with the shadow, done with the patterns, but not the principles. So friends, specific ceremonies may end. But the heart of the law, the moral principles do not. And that's why you could have God, if you will, change the rules and say stop sacrificing without changing his character and his moral principles and saying, yes, I have a standard for Israel and this is what they were supposed to do this was their special system and now you have something else you may still be wondering what all this has to do with acts 10 but it's simply this that many of these over 600 commands in the old testament several uh, ceremonial and civil laws have the same moral principle behind them Namely, being separated from the world. If you were to take the two themes, and they're the most frequently reflected into these commands, the Old Testament would be, what I just told you about man's sin and God's holy righteousness and need for substitute, all the worship-oriented commands. And the other is all the ones that reflect a separation from sin and a life of purity. And that was symbolically illustrated by these commands in the Old Testament that had Israel separate herself from the Gentile pagan nations. So in Deuteronomy 22, for example, Israelites are not to mix different kinds of seed when planting crops. Why in the world would we do that? They're not to plow with two different types of animals. No, it's not just about efficiency. Right? Not about... Having an ox for, and a donkey side by side, that would be inefficient. No, that's not what God's saying. They're to wear two different garments of two different, or wear garments of two kinds of cloths, Deuteronomy 20 says. There were different classes of animals, as we've seen in Leviticus 11, that were separated into categories of clean and unclean. Why this kind of uh, one side and the other side bilateral distinction in these these differences separation from one another was it morally evil to have an ox plow with a donkey no was it morally evil to have you know the same you know two different kinds of cloth and in these garments no it's not morally evil but these Ceremony and civil laws of separation, they illustrated an important principle, namely that God had separated Israel from the Gentiles, and so they were reminded of this truth in everything they did, even with the seeds that they sowed. So when Jesus came, came, the Bible tells us that God eliminated this barrier between Israel and the Gentile nations. But, and please hear this, he did not eliminate the basic moral principle of being separate from the world. All of the separation of Israel and Gentile nations was a symbol, it was a shadow, it was a pattern of things to come, which would be separating yourself from the world. And when the church is established, which includes both Jew and Gentile It's not appropriate anymore to have that symbol be the shadow still of Israel from Gentile. Now both Israel and Gentile, Israelite and Gentile, are separating themselves from the world. So what happens in Acts 10? God tells Peter he can now eat Gentile food. Everything has been made clean. It's not that there's something innately evil about pigs. All of God's creation is good. Some of you think there is something innately evil about pigs, and you don't eat pork. But the point is, you'll notice in Acts 10 that God does not say, you know what, Peter, Leviticus 11, that was a bad law. I don't know what I was thinking that day. I mean, that day I gave that law to uh, to Moses, I, I think I was just cranky. I told him all the things he couldn't eat. That's not what he says. What God says is that the purpose of Leviticus 11 was fulfilled. In Christ, the division of Jew and Gentile is erased. Therefore, those, in a, those laws that reflected that in, in a specific separation from the Gentile nations, it's okay, we're good. What about the rest of the Old Testament law? Well, when Jesus said that he had not come to abolish the law, he must then have meant that the law in all of its parts continues but where there are specific ceremonial or civil laws whose purpose is fulfilled in Christ or as the result of Christ's work are fulfilled, then these laws may no longer apply, but what will not ever fade away? The principles behind them. Is it still wrong to commit adultery? Yes. Is it still wrong to worship idols? Yes. Is it still necessary to have a sacrifice for sin? Yes. Is it still necessary to separate oneself from the world? Absolutely. We cannot serve both God and money. We cannot yoke ourselves with unbelievers. You see how, how the New Testament still applies the same basic principles, that same you know, separation between two things, light and darkness, world, flesh, spirit. The principles are still being reflected into the new testament but it's no longer israel and the gentile nations and so as we go back to acts chapter 10 we can see the reason why luke would actually insert this one chapter into the midst of this biographical account of paul because who is paul paul is the apostle to the gentiles And doesn't the incident with Peter and Cornelius explain vividly for anyone reading Acts and saying, well, why, you know, because the rest of the book we're going to be reading about this this movement, these missionary journeys into the, the pagan nations, why does God care? What a perfect introduction for Paul's mission to see this incident with Peter and Cornelius. Now, it's hard for us today to understand how significant God's command to Peter was. What it must have been like to be told that so many things that required separation between Jew and Gentile no longer had to be observed his entire life, his entire generational legacy, right? And when we read the first verses of chapter 11, we realize how difficult this was for many Israelites who are hearing Peter's story to accept what? In fact, not long after these events of chapters 10 and 11, what is recorded for us in the book of Galatians is that Peter gave in to pressure from his Israelite brothers and wouldn't sit at the table with the Gentiles again. And so Paul has to confront him directly with the hypocrisy. Look down at verses 25 to 28 of chapter 10 here in Acts when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I'm a man too. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons And He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Translate that, you know how hard it was for me to come in here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Wow, that was a big change for Peter. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, "Why are you sent for me?" Because Peter's Peter's ready for something amazing. It's such a Such a foundational change. Why did you ask for me? Because I want to hear what God's doing. And then verses 34 through 35, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand, God does not show partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 18 of chapter 11 says that when the Israelite Christians at Jerusalem heard Peter's account, that they became silent. They didn't have the same experience that he had of of that vision of, of being spoken directly to and being commanded to have a heart change and an attitude change. But it says they became silent and stopped accusing Peter of breaking the law. It's so nice and gently said here there had to have been some pretty strong rebuke and outrage over what what are you doing peter is this what jesus meant you know then it says they became silent and instead what did they do they glorified god saying then to the gentiles also god has granted repentance that leads to life I'd like to think that there was a celebration that day. And I would like to think, you know, when we come to faith, isn't it, isn't it remarkable, many of you more recent than, than others, that whole attitude shift, right, when you realize truth and you, you begin to look at the world differently and you begin to see the profundity around you, this paradox of God's truth as it reflects in the human life, what, is, what was foolishness before, just suddenly as this wisdom of God, as is described in 1 Corinthians. And I don't know if you're like me, but I, I can vividly remember, because it still happens regularly for me as I study God's word, but just that... The same thing that drove C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity to say, no man could come up with this, right? It's just, there's something so joy-producing and amazing in in what God does that I have to think this had to have been, even though it was such a change in their their worldview and their lifestyle, it had to have been a day where they said, That makes sense. That's what the gospel would do. That makes sense. God's not a partial God. God's a righteous God. He's a creator of the entire universe. He made the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, that whole fabric, right, of what had become a perversion by the time of Christ in that first century begins to break down and, and just disintegrate into this joyful thought of, God is so good, and we were so dumb. The final step in the expansion of the gospel has happened. Jesus said that the gospel will go out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and the ends of the earth are these Gentile nations, and Cornelius is just the start. And we've seen these concentric circles expanding in the book of Acts so far. As we went from center in Jerusalem, out, 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 and now in Acts chapter 10, it's Cornelius and the ends of the earth. And all of it shows that God is not partial, but rather the Lord of all. So how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, first, God's moral principles never change. That's first application. Wherever they have been directly stated, such as you shall not commit murder, they will still apply today, whether someone has heard the law or not. While we look to civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, we should ask, what are the moral principles behind them? Second, If there is any part of us, friends, that reacts negatively when we hear the term law and talk about God's various principles, we may need to remove that negativity from our minds and hearts. I know that the term law can be a loaded one. To some, when they hear the word, they think of the protection that our laws give us and They think of the laws that prevent people from coming into their homes at night uninvited. They hinder people from taking things that that we've purchased, punish those who harm us. But other people, when they think of laws, they think of restrictions, not, not protections. They think of restrictions. Because, you know, they'll say laws keep us from going faster than 65 miles per hour on the freeway. And they make it difficult to own certain types of firearms, They force us to pay 30% or more of our income in state and federal taxes. Perhaps some even think of attorneys and pork-barrel politics and injustices of our legal system. Did any of you, though, when I discussed Peter's law and Peter's dilemma as he's sitting there and and seeing this vision and, and seeing this foundational change, did you think of the law as holy and good? Did any of you think about how much God's law is a delight to you or how hard the situation would have been if you had been Peter. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 119. I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. Or how about Psalm 19? The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Some of you are thinking, well, when I want to revive my soul, I I go put on my favorite Christian praise song. How many of you go to Leviticus? (laughs) But David's saying the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives my soul when I meditate upon it. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. They're protections, they're blessings. And righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Protections. In keeping them, there is great reward, blessing. And we hear David's attitude. Not only was it a personal delight that he had in God's law, but he received these blessings from the law. Psalm 19:165 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, That doesn't sound like someone who saw the law as a burden or oppressive or in any way negative. And how could he have that attitude? How can we make it a delight to search for God's moral principles and the commandments of the Old Testament? Not just to interpret a section like Acts 10 through 11, but to truly enjoy reading through some of those books of the Old Testament. Well, that leads me to application three, which is God's moral principles are an extension of both his righteous character and his love for us. Love for us? Law? Yes. In Exodus 19, God tells Moses before he gives his law to Israel, before he gives the law. And I, I've pointed this one out to you before because I think the timing is so critical. It's as if God knows the temptation of human nature to accept law and say, restrictions, hatred. God wants to put his thumb on me. And he says, Moses, I want you to remind the people how much I love them. Be sure to remind them before you give them these commands, what I've done for them in the past, Remind them how I've watched over their lives every day and concerned myself about their future. Blessing. Protection. Centuries after those days in the Sinai, the Lord told Hosea and Hosea 9, like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Dry parched land. Can you imagine how how happy and joyful you would be to come around the corner, hungry, hot, parched and thirst, and to see a grapevine full of beautiful grapes. He says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season. What are grapes in the desert An early fruit on the fig tree? They are these refreshing delicacies. There is something to bring a surge of, Pure pleasure to the heart. And so when God told Moses to remind the people of his love for him, he wanted to avoid having the people look at Moses and say that God didn't care about us. And friends, I tell you the truth, that's how many of us look at God's law today. So I said, we need to get rid of that negativity that we have towards the law. We see Mount Sinai and the rest of that time up until Jesus is this dark period of burdensome duty before God as if God had all of these rules. And if you do X, Y, and Z, you will live. If you do not, you will die. We see the Old Testament period as a time from which the church was delivered. And in a story like Acts 10, we breathe a sigh of relief and say to ourselves, boy, I am so glad that I didn't have to live in that oppressive time before Jesus. Wasn't Peter just finally glad to be released? But that isn't how God introduced his giving of the law. So don't read Acts 10 and think of Peter as feeling like he was living as a prisoner in the prison of God's Levitical laws, fearful that if he broke the law, he would be punished. Peter loved God's law, just as we should love the law. The gospel is not the good news that God has saved us from his law. He has saved us from the consequences of breaking his law. Can you make that distinction in your mind? The gospel is not the good news that God has saved us from his law in that dark period of oppression. The gospel is the good news that he has saved us from the consequences of breaking his holy, perfect, blessed, righteous, protective law. The law is gracious and good. And so we should be concerned. We should be searching the Old Testament Not just as a storehouse of stories, but as a repository of God's truth and finding out what are his moral principles. What should I be implementing in my life today? I want to live like this because I want to reflect the character of God. At last, just as Peter learned that the Gentiles are now included with the Israelites, we should remember that no person is outside of God's mercy. So don't think that your hard-hearted, crusty old neighbor is outside of God's mercy. Share the gospel with him. Pray that God will change his heart. Well, we'll return to the account of Paul's journeys next week, but let's rejoice that the event of chapter 10 took place, for ultimately it means that we, Gentiles, have been granted access to God, and that the impartial, holy God has been merciful to us, and we've been grafted into the tree that is Israel. And we are welcome to sit at the master's table. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the good and holy God who has invited us to your table this morning. We who, it's so hard for us to imagine putting ourselves on the other side of the fence when we read the Bible of Israel and the Gentile nations and We keep putting ourselves in the place of Israel, but we are in the place of the Gentiles. But Father, you who show no partiality, but show mercy to those whom you will show mercy for those who love you. Father, we thank you that you called us out of darkness. We thank you for your law. We thank you for the principles that reflect your holy character. And I pray that we would have a very positive attitude like David had, that we would want to meditate upon your law and learn from what you did command the Israelites to do, that we would be able to plumb the depths of what are these principles, especially behind the ceremonial and civil laws, and be thankful for how they protect us today, how they inform us how to live. And how they remind us of the goodness and the grace of your provision for us. Lord, thank you for this little pause in the story of Paul's accounts. Because it reminds us that you were accomplishing something. You were spreading the gospel out to the very ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.